0: Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Have you ever had a revelation as to the power of fiction? What words written on paper can do to a reader? I have, and you may have also. Let me mention mine. When I was 10 years old, my mom and her five children were crossing the state of Washington from the little town of Ephrata, where we lived, to the slightly bigger town of Longview, where my mom's parents, my grandparents lived, and what wonderful people they were. My dad wasn't on the train because he was a farmer in eastern Washington and, and couldn't take any time off in July. So my mom was tending to my four siblings and me, five in total, all aged ten or under. I was the oldest. She was busy. I walked a few seats forward in the train car to an empty seat, and on that seat was something I'd never seen before, a men's action magazine. I don't remember whether it was true adventure or Argosy or men's adventure. The covers of these magazines were always these wonderful semi-lurid drawings, usually of a muscled fellow without a shirt bare-handedly fighting a cougar or something like that. Inside the magazine were, were ads for radio repair correspondent courses and cigarettes and tools and hair pomade, and Frederick's of Hollywood apparel you could order for your significant other. You remember. Well, maybe you don't, but I remember. I picked up the magazine and sat on the train seat by myself. I'd never seen anything like this. The paper was pulpy. There's there's a reason they were called pulp magazines. And the red and blue and green ink looked as if it had come off on my hands. I don't know how I knew, but I knew instinctively that my mom wouldn't like me reading this magazine, so I hunched down in the seat by myself and began reading. I came upon a story about a man on the Amazon, <laughs> on the Amazon River in Brazil, in a canoe, when a huge python dropped on him from a tree. It was fabulous. What a fight. Who hasn't wanted to fight a a 20-foot-long snake? I have ever since. What a story. I was right there in the jungle on that canoe, fighting for breath with this python wrapped around me. Yet I was on a train with my family. I finished the story and left the magazine on the seat and went back to my mom and brothers and sister, much more worldly than I'd been 20 minutes earlier. I've never forgotten it. It was a pulpy men's magazine, sure. It wasn't Shakespeare or Bronte or Dickens, but it lit me up. And I believe to this day that a desire to be able to tell such a story began for me on that train ride. Has something, Did something similar happen to you? What got you thinking you wanted to write? What lit the fire? It may not have involved Fredericks of Hollywood ads and a twenty-foot 20 python fight, but I'd like to know, and you can tell, and you can let me know in an email. I'd be glad to receive it. My email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham. Has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the eighteen twenties and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels and I toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago and I hope you'll consider getting a print or e-book copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title, again, is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. Maybe the most important skill for us writers in our sentence by sentence writing, is showing rather than telling. Let me say again, showing and telling are terms of art in the writing profession. Showing is more interesting to the reader than telling, because showing reveals while telling explains. Things that are revealed to the reader engage the reader more than things that are explained. Uh, You know my favorite example. The the sentences I keep in my head to keep it straight, she scratched her arm is showing, her arm itched is telling. I'd like to mention the difference between showing and telling in another big area of our crafting a story and it's the setting. Can we show instead of tell regarding the setting? Uh, setting, of course, is the place and time of our story. Without a description of the setting, a novel seems unattached to the ground, seems to be floating in the air. Uh, Well-drawn settings can add a huge level of interest to a novel, such as the descriptions of London in Charles Dickens' novels, and in the 19th century English coal town in Martin Cruz Smith's novel Rose. Almost every location where our characters find themselves should be described. Uh, The key to showing regarding the setting is the key to showing in other areas. Is there evidence? If we, the writer, can find evidence of the setting, we'll get it across to the reader by showing. So here are some examples of how to show rather than tell regarding the setting. Here's a telling version. Rob's bedroom was a mess. Here's how to show the same thing. Rob kicked aside two empty Coke bottles and swatted an empty pizza box off his bed. He pushed aside a pile of shirts, then sat down. Hear the difference between the tell version, which is a lecture, and the show version, which is where the author reveals to the reader that the room's a mess. Here's a tell version. The forest was dangerous and dark. Here's the show of the same time of the same thing. A wolf howled from somewhere under the forest canopy. The moon was only a sliver. Here is a tell version. The water well was deep. How do we show it? He threw a pebble into the well. "'and counted to five before he heard it splash. "'Here's a tell version. "'The house might have been haunted. "'How do we show that? "'Many of the windows had been broken. "'A low, wavering moan came through the front door, "'and a pale light flashed from a window on the second floor. "'Here, instead of hearing a little lecture, "'the house might have been haunted,' The, the author has prevent, presented evidence, has revealed to the reader, the house probably is haunted. Here's a tell version. The sea was running high. How do we show that? Foaming 10-foot waves rushed toward the beach. Gee, that's a nice image. Revealed to the reader, the sea's running high. Here's a tell version. Janet loved the colorful room decorations. How do we show that? Streamers hung from the chandeliers and helium balloons rose from every corner. A red and yellow banner read, "'Happy Birthday.' Janet laughed and gave a thumbs up to her daughter, who was bringing in the cake. Gee, that's a nice image. It's so much better than the tell version. Janet loved the colorful room decorations." Here's another, a tell version. The house had a cavernous feel. How do we show that? His footsteps echoed as he walked into the living room. A tell version. The forest was gorgeous in the autumn. Showing it, aspen leaves had fallen, covering the forest floor in gold. Here, a couple more. Here's a tell version. The house was stark and uninviting. How do we show that? The house was made of unpainted concrete blocks and the windows didn't have shutters or shades. Here's a tell version. The lawn had been ignored. We show that. The grass rose as high as his knees and dandelions grew beneath, uh, between the paving stones. In each of these examples, the show version engages the reader by presenting evidence of the setting. The the show version offers a picture for the reader, and that's our job as writers regarding the setting, painting a picture for the reader. Showing will do that. It's such a strong and important technique. I hope it becomes our default mode of description. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. What's a good way to learn how to write? Learn about fiction writing techniques. I hope and I think listening to these podcasts is a good way. And so are taking a writing class, reading a good book on the fiction craft, joining a writing group. But there is also a strong way to learn about writing fiction that requires almost no extra time out of our day. And not too much effort. And it's this. While we are reading a novel for pleasure, ask ourselves, what is the writer doing that is keeping me reading? What's the author doing? Another way to ask it is, why is this novel so good? Or maybe we can ask the reverse. Why isn't this novel keeping my interest? In other words, we can learn something while we read if we'll take a moment to notice things while reading. This may, in fact, be a wonderful and productive way to learn to write. And the evidence of this is in the history of novelists. There's no evidence that Charles Dickens or Mark Twain, or Leo Tolstoy, or Charlotte Bronte, or Agatha Christie ever took writing classes or read books on how to writing. And I'll bet Charles Dickens never listened to podcasts. Yet these authors learned to write their masterpieces somehow. How? I suspect they learned by reading novels and noticing what the authors were doing, how the author put the story together while reading they noticed what worked and what didn't there's a downside to doing this john gardner in his famous work on writing titled the art of fiction said the author's goal should be to have the reader quote sink into the dream end quote if we as readers are trying to learn what the author's doing in a novel we're uh, in a novel we're reading maybe it'll be harder to sink into the dream But what brought this to mind is that I'm reading Kate Atkinson's novel, Shrines of Gaiety. She's a well-regarded novelist, but I'd never read anything by her before. After some pages of her novel, Shrines of Gaiety, I asked myself, "Why why am I enjoying this so much? And I started making a list of the techniques she was doing so well. What has Kate Atkinson done in this story that has put me right in the novel with her characters? Here's a list. First, a fast start. In the first pages, a crowd is gathered outside a London prison where a 13-year-old newsboy has the point of view and he can't see what's going on at the prison because of the crowd and he asks, Is there a hanging? We learn in the first few pages that Nellie, the main character in the novel, has just been released from jail, and a crowd is waiting for her, and we don't don't hear any backstory or explanation. Right away in the story, something big and interesting is happening. That's such a good technique, and Kate Atkinson knows it and does it in the first pages. Second thing I noticed is the era, of course, when the novel happens. It's the 1920s, and I really like reading about that decade, and maybe you do too. It was called the Jazz Age. Uh, Old old ways were giving way to new ones. Cars were replacing horses. Jazz was replacing ragtime. Uh, People were leaving farms and coming to the cities. It was a time of flappers and gangsters, and, and after the horrors of the Great War, there was a feeling of release. People people in real life were looking for fun, and so are, are people in the novel. The third thing I noticed was the protagonist. Her name is Nellie Coker. She's middle-aged and is, is based on the famous 1920s London club owner, Kate uh, the Nellie is smart and she's noble, but she can also be a thief, and she's in a tough business. She owns a nightclub, and then she owns several nightclubs, and she can be ruthless. In a review of the novel, the Toronto Star called Nellie, quote, a force of nature. End quote "I agree, and it's fascinating to follow her in this story. What a character." The fourth thing I noticed, it's a family novel with all the interesting interactions among uh, Nellies and her family. The oldest boy, Nevin, is a World War I uh, combat veteran. And then there's the smart but rather plain daughter, Edith, who ends up helping run the nightclubs because she has a way with accounting. And there are the two beautiful daughters, Betty and Shirley, who are cunning but vacuous, and the boy Ramsay, She has a, Nellie has a lot of children. The boy Ramsay's a drug addict and wants to be a novelist. And lastly, the youngest, uh, a girl named Kitty, who's usually ignored. What a mix! These this family is going to interact together in all their different personalities and appearances. And it'll be fascinating. And the fifth thing I noticed is the novel's location, its setting. It's London in the 1920s, and it's and uh, Kate Atkinson brings London 1920s to life as would Dickens. I was impressed. Uh, London back then was still in the 19th century, but was also in the 20th century. There were nightclubs and. Dancers and uh, the clubs had a band, hat-check girls and cigarette girls and visits by gangsters and actresses and boxers. And there was was the dime-at-a-time dancers. I recently mentioned in an episode how smells can bring a reader to the setting, and Atkinson uses the technique. She has a phrase, quote, the ambrosial scent of frying bacon wafted toward him from somewhere. Isn't that terrific? And then she knows that Covent Garden in London smells of rotted cabbage leaves. The the reader receives a strong sense of being in London back then. The sixth thing I noticed, uh, Atkinson's authority when presenting characters and settings. She's done the research. Uh, she writes about uh, London police station, she writes about a Ealing Terrace where a policeman lives and the night porters in Covent Garden. She talks about mannequin parades that toured part of the North Countries hosted by local dress shops. Time and again, the author shows she knows her subjects, uh, such as mentioning the dead, man, the dead man's hole in the river near the Tower Bridge, where bodies thrown into the Thames, congregate and swirl around. I quickly learned to trust Kate Atkinson's descriptions. Yes, this is how London was a hundred years ago. What a pleasure to read. Uh, this, the next thing I noticed in my I made a list, the seventh thing, and we've mentioned the technique adding about adding new characters. Uh, throwing new characters into the mix and seeing what happens to them. Atkinson does just this. I've just come across the policeman Forbisher, and he's odd and and interesting. And now there's the dazzlingly pretty 14-year-old whose mother has essentially abandoned her and who has traveled on her own to London to try to be an actress. What could go wrong? Or what could go right? I can't wait to find out. Uh, Eighth, and the last thing I noticed, uh, the author, uh, Kate Atkinson, has a wonderful ability to turn a phrase. I laughed out loud when I read that one of Nellie's daughters, quote, "...very hard-nosed, yet occasionally mockishly sentimental, a combination shared with her mother, and many dictators, both before and since." (laughs) Atkinson likes playing with words, and she's good at it. The, the protagonist, Nellie, is described as short and owlish. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, she describes another character as disguising herself with a stiff carapace. The author has a wonderful way with words, and, and the skill is something f- for me and other writers to shoot for. For us writers, this is a good use of our time. When we read for pleasure, let's ask ourselves, what is the author doing that's so good? Why am I turning the pages? I bet I can learn from it. I've done this all my reading life, and you can too. It's a great way to learn the craft of writing fiction. I have been talking recently about Emotional dialogue. The techniques for writing emotional dialogue, I've touched on love and anger. I'd like to do so now again uh, regarding dialogue that conveys fear. Here is Mary Higgins Clark in her novel, While My Pretty One Sleeps. Uh, Please note the pace of the scene. Note how the dialogue and action is woven together. "'Here's Mary Higgins Clark. "'The door to Sal's showroom was open. "'She ran in and closed it behind her. "'The room was empty. "'Sal!' she called, almost panicked. "'Uncle Sal!' "'He hurried from his private office. "'Neve, what's the matter?' "'Sal, I think someone is following me.' "'Neve grasped his arm. "'Lock the door, please.' "'Sal stared at her. "'Neve, are you sure?' "'Yes, I've seen him three or four times.' Those dark, deep-set eyes, the sallow skin. Neve felt the color run from her face. Sal, she whispered, I know who it is. He works in the coffee shop. Why would he be following you? I don't know, Neve stared at Sal. Unless Miles was right all along. Is it possible Nikki Seppity wanted me dead? See the action? She's running into the room, calling out, grabbing his arm. Color drains from her face. And the words, her dialogue, I think someone's following me. Lock the door, please. I know who it is. Emotional dialogue grabs readers, and fear is a big emotion. Uh, When a character in our story is afraid, the, the reader can't stop reading because the reader, in sympathy with the character, is afraid too. Here are some techniques for writing dialogue where the characters are afraid. Uh, f- uh, first, use short sentences, not only in the dialogue, but in the narrative accompanying the dialogue. Short sentences are punchy and add a percussive action feel to the, to the scene of fear. They give a sense that something, probably something bad is going to happen. Short sentences are like a trapdoor that might or might not be released. A second, often the characters, and so the reader, don't know what's happening. Sal asks, Neve, are you sure? Dialogue that shows fear is often filled with questions, and uh, the speakers are unsure. Sometimes uh, a question doesn't get answered because they don't know the answer. Uh, there's a technique in horror stories and movies. Uh, this technique is the monster behind the door is scarier than the monster in the room. The characters likely shouldn't know all that is happening in the scene, and their dialogue should reflect that. The monster's behind the door, and they talk about it. Uh, third, as mentioned, uh, weave dialogue and action together together. In scenes of fear, the characters should be doing something, probably trying to get away. And action, combined with dialogue, is a way to ramp up the tension. Mix them together, action and dialogue, in a series of short sentences. Four, slow down the time. We talked a couple episodes ago about how we writers can slow time for the reader. So the reader experiences the scene in exquisite detail. And I mentioned the example of Mario Puzo, how he did it in the toll booth scene in his novel, A Godfather. We can do it in dialogue that shows fear. Slow the time down by showing or having the characters notice detail more than usual. And maybe some of the detail doesn't pertain to the fright at hand. They've just noticed it. It's random, and it just entered their brains, and so their dialogue. Uh, maybe there's a terrible acceptance of what's going to happen when all the chances of escape are gone, and, uh, or so the characters think at the moment. These will slow the clock and let the reader experience the fear. We have arrived at the end of this episode. I'm glad you were along for it. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.